We've got comments from central bank leaders and a stock split from a fool favorite. Motley Fool Money starts now. Dylan Lewis sitting in for Chris Hill, joined by Motley Fool Premium Analyst John Ritanti. John, uh, inflation is one of the inescapable stories of 2022 for investors and consumers alike. Uh, Yesterday, we got a little bit of an update on how some of the central bank leaders around the world, especially the U.S.'s own Jay Powell, are thinking about the current environment right now. Hey, Dylan. Uh, Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, um, Powell's comments yesterday, Chairman Powell's comments yesterday were definitely interesting. What concerns me, I think, is that we're at this generational inflection point and very few investors have truly invested in an inflationary environment. Um, Dylan, you and I were barely born the last time we had real inflation in the US. The Motley Fool had not been founded yet. Interest rates have been falling for 40 years, which was a massive tailwind for stocks, by the way. Inflation has been benign for 30 years and money has been pretty much free since uh, 2009, since coming out of the GFC, the global financial crisis in 2009. And now all of that is changing. And even Fed Chair Jerome Powell admitted um, that the Fed really doesn't understand inflation or what it will truly take to fight it. Because uh, we are in a fight. Uh, 8.5%, inflation is real. And households are, are anxious and they're angry when you know, the price of the gas pump is going up, price of the grocery store is going up. That really affects uh, people's way of life. And so we're in a fight. John, I want to zoom in on that comment uh, that Powell made. It kind of made the the rounds on Twitter yesterday. I think we now understand how little we understand about inflation. Um, that that got dunked on a lot on social media yesterday because you would think of of all the people to have a good finger on the pulse for what's going on. Uh, it would hopefully be our Fed chair. The reason for it, though, it gets back to a lot of things you were just talking about before, where so much of what we've seen over the last couple decades is so different than what we're staring out at going forward, especially because the forces driving a lot of those things are things that not necessarily have been a part of the macro picture over the last couple of decades. I think you're right, Dylan. You know, there's there's recency bias here. And by recency, I don't mean the last few years or the last few months. 30 years, we've had benign inflation. And then more recently, we couldn't even hit our 2% inflation target. We, we, were, we were constantly under that. And no matter what Chairman Powell and the Fed did, they could not get up to 2%. And so this is, this is a new problem. We really are at this generational inflection point. The other thing that concerns me and is related is that Chairman Powell and the Federal Reserve understand even less about how to, how to wind down a $9 trillion balance sheet, because that has never been done before. At least we can look back at history and learn about inflation and how rising interest rates impact the economy. There's some history lesson there, but there is no history lesson. There is no precedent for scaling down a $9 trillion balance sheet. Uh, and so what concerns me, and it's not a large concern, it's just what concerns me, or what, what I'm starting to factor into my analysis more and more, is the uncertainty and inexperience that virtually all of us have with this, even Chairman Powell. And I do think that the stocks that worked in a period of inflation below 2%, and when we had free money, like I said, really dating back to 2009, are not necessarily the stocks that will work in a high inflationary environment. So, you know, that's, that's where we stand today. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point, John. Um, and 
there's there's a lot of feelings of what got us here may not necessarily be what you know gets us to move forward with this um even kind of zooming in on on the comments that powell made one of the things that he had talked about in his ecb forum comments was that when you look at how we've been approaching inflation how we've been measuring inflation how we've been anticipating inflation the models that we've been using didn't have us above four percent uh, from the prognosticators that tend to look at these things uh, a year out. He said 34 out of 35 professional forecasters a year ago had inflation below 4%. And the reason for that was the model they use, without getting too far into it, uh, it's called the Phillips curve. And it assumes that inflation and unemployment are inversely related. And what we've seen, especially over the last 12 months, 18 months or so, is that isn't necessarily the case. We've seen unemployment is trending downward. We've seen the job market be relatively strong, and yet we've continued to see a lot of inflation, and a big part of that is because of supply side issues that are much harder to anticipate. I think that's part of it, Dylan. I think it's also that um, these curves completely break down when you've had a decade plus of free money. And I, th I think that's the number one thing that everyone is underestimating, is what happens when money is free going back to 2009 and then on top of that uh we were in a we were in a very 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 scary time we were in a pandemic and so unprecedented amounts of liquidity were pumped into the market and then free money was given out as handouts these transfer payments to households and so after 12 or 13 years of free money we layered on more free money which we needed to do i mean we needed to do it but now, after 13 years of that type of liquidity, these curves start to break down. It's not, just, it's not just the Phillips curve and inflation and unemployment. It's stocks and bonds typically never move, or didn't move in the same direction. And now they're moving in the same direction. There's a lot of strange, weird things happening because of a decade plus of unprecedented fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, any type of stimulus that you can think of, all these curves start to break down. And so, although I have never invested during an inflationary environment, I do try to consider myself a student of history. I did notice this generational inflection point very early on, uh, even last year. And so, I arranged for 12 outside experts to come in and speak to the Motley Fool investing team, all in the first quarter of this year, Dylan all in the first quarter. Um, and so I feel like our team is ready and we got a jumpstart on our educational sessions for the current environment that, I, that we are in. I front-loaded, I, I, I purposefully front-loaded these educational sessions all into the first quarter because macro is going to demand so much more of our attention in a world of higher inflation, Fed tightening cycle, higher interest rates, liquidity being siphoned from the economy, high oil prices, a potential the emphasis on globalization and the Fed attempting to slow down the economy without causing a recession. So what I am very positive about, Dylan, I'd like to end this session, this little part on a positive note, is the strength of the U.S. consumer, the strength of household balance sheets. Like you said, unemployment is still very low. We're at you know maximum employment in this country. And I'm also very positive on the Motley Fool's ability to pick the best stocks for this environment and our ability to guide our members through whatever the markets and whatever macro throw our way. 
I appreciate you bringing some of the positive stuff in there, John, because I think it, it can be hard to stare at uh, the headlines that are just pumping the inflation news yep. and talking about you know the impact that's that's being felt and it's real. But there are a lot of positive signs in what we're seeing in, in the broader macro picture. Knowing all of this, seeing all of this, and you know looking at some of the comments from yesterday, it's pretty clear uh, they are going to be focused on getting inflation back down to two percent. It was reiterated as a main target for the Fed, and Powell said the risk would be in failing to restore price stability, not so much in going too far with rate hikes. If they're going to overshoot on one, the focus should be on restoring price stability. In in this environment where we have all these forces, what are you looking at uh, for companies? What are you looking for in companies, and what do you want to be owning? I love that question. I'll answer that in a second. I'll just say really quickly, Fed Chair Powell is saying time and time again we are going to fight we're going to fight inflation and we're going to get back down to our 2% target no matter what it takes the market doesn't necessarily believe him dylan the market is playing chicken with fed pallop at points and that's when you see these massive up days these massive up weeks and then they're followed by these massive down weeks and i think the reason is because despite uh chair powell saying time and time again we are going to do whatever it takes I think the market is worried that every 1% increase in interest rates increases uh, the, the debt service on US debt by $300 billion. And so I think the market is predicting that Fed chair is going to have to backtrack on interest rate hikes at some point in time. Now, I don't have an opinion on that. That's above my pay grade. But it's interesting, this dynamic of Chair Powell constantly saying, we will do whatever it takes, and the market constantly not really believing him. So that dynamic is going to be interesting to watch uh, play out. So what do you want to own? I think first and foremost, Dylan, we need to remember that stocks are the best long-term hedge against inflation. If you look at the Deutsche Bank long-term asset return study or work by Professor Jeremy Siegel or Morgan Housel or so many other people, stocks have provided higher real returns than U.S. government bonds, high-rate corporate bonds, junk bonds, real estate, and gold going back very long periods of time. Um, so that's the first thing. Stocks are the best hedge against inflation. Secondly, you want to invest across the growth spectrum and diversify, 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 diversify by industry, sector, market cap, and geography. And then getting more specific, you want to own companies with high returns on invested capital because these businesses tend to, to be not capital intensive, meaning they don't need to spend a lot of capital to maintain and grow their assets at a time when input costs for those assets are rising. So inflationary investing 101 is really to own businesses that generate high ROICs and that don't need to invest a lot of new capital to grow because the cost of that capital is rising. Then you also want to make sure you have companies that have a long runway of free cash flow growth, and you want free cash flow that you expect to grow faster than the rate of inflation. And then the same with dividends. Look for companies that have a long history of consistently increasing the dividend every single year, and that you expect will continue to increase the dividend at an annualized rate higher than inflation. And then finally, real estate has historically been a great place to be during inflation because one, a lot of real estate has long-term contracts with annual pricing power written into the contracts, and two, the replacement cost of real estate goes up. The input costs go up, so it becomes more expensive to build new real estate. 
So this increases the value of current real estate because it means less new capacity comes onto the market. John, I have to ask the question because I'm sure our listeners are thinking it. Are there any specific names that you throw out there as uh, something that is worth checking out? Maybe maybe a, a business that wouldn't necessarily be on someone's radar uh, following some of the more growth-oriented strategies that The Fool has tended to follow over the last 10 years or so. You know, I love I love the fool's growth oriented strategy. I just I, you know I support a a a one for one balancing. So for every um, earlier stage growth company that the fool loves, you know you balance it out with a Home Depot. So that's one example right there. And then for every earlier stage growth growth company that the fool loves, you balance it out with a Visa. You balance it out with a you know with a Berkshire Hathaway. So those t- those types of really high return, high free cash flow, moderate growth, but highly resilient type of businesses, Dylan. Speaking of high growth names in the full universe, uh, Shopify shareholders saw a bit of shuffling in their portfolios yesterday. The company completed a 10 to 1 stock split, bringing the price per share down to 30-ish dollars, down from the 300s pre-split. John, we know in the academic sense, we're staring at the same thing here pre and post split stock splits have gotten a lot of attention over the last couple of years uh, in part because we've seen some some high growth names really dramatically appreciate in value and they've they've looked to quote unquote make shares more accessible to the average investor um, what do you see in the trend with stock splits in Shopify deciding to make this move um, and I know you're a, you're a Shopify shareholder how are you thinking about all this uh, yeah so just to reiterate what you just said the value of what you own fools has not changed by one penny the value of what we own has not changed by one penny. Dylan, I think this one is a joke. I think this is a bad move on Shopify's part. I'm not selling my shares. It's not concer- overly concerning to me, but this is, this is poor judgment. I understand that this decision was made of a couple months ago or whatever it was, but um, I had to speak out on this one, Dylan. I tweeted yesterday, was a drop from 1,700 down to 300 not enough for Toby and company? Like, honestly, I would have reversed course if I was Toby. I know they announced this split, but when they saw that their stock was continuing to fall, you know, virtually every day, if Dylan, 82% off its high from 1700 down to 300 at one point, is that not enough to attract retail investors? I, I think this is really poor judgment. I think this is follow the leader because Amazon did it, right? And Google did it. And I don't know who else did it. It's all poor judgment, in my opinion. I think this is pandering to option traders. This is encouraging margin. It's encouraging options. And it's encouraging stonk traders. I, I Honestly, I think this is poor judgment. I don't think it changes the thesis, but it's just fo- it's a game of follow the leader. I think Toby should be focusing on Amazon fulfillment. I think Toby should be focusing on improving its product suite, honestly. There's, I've been reading a lot of reviews recently that um, Shopify doesn't have everything that entrepreneurs need to succeed. It has a lot, but not everything. They've struggled with fulfillment. And then finally, as we all know, this is a power grab by Toby, but it's, Toby's not the only one doing it. A lot of founders are doing this type of thing. To unpack that a little bit, uh, you mentioned that they announced this a couple months ago. As, as a part of that announcement, they also made some updates to their, their corporate governance and some of their share structures. And I, I think, if anything, with the stock split, for me, it's an example of pay attention to this, not that. Don't don't pay attention as much to the number of shares uh, or the price of the share and what we're seeing pre-post split, but pay attention to the fact that 
when they made this decision and when shareholders were voting on things, they also approved non-transferable founder shares, which increased Toby Lutke's power to 40%. Uh, prior to this, I think his voting power was around uh, 33 or 34% of the company. Um, John, the, the, the story with this business, basically the entire time that it's been a public company has been, if you are buying shares of Shopify, you are investing in and right alongside Toby Lutka. Uh, so far, that's generally been a, a pretty good sure. proposition for, for people. So I, as a shareholder, am, am happy to see that his incentives and his stake are there and well represented. I think he has a pretty good vision uh, for where the company should be heading and his roadmap has been pretty strong so far. I'm curious how, how you feel about it. Uh, I'm invested alongside uh, alongside Toby. I, I intend to be a long-term share owner of Shopify. I feel like 33% ownership and control is probably enough, Dylan. You know, I, I, I come at this from an ESG angle too, and my dear friend and colleague, Alice Lomax, I know she's like probably fuming over this because this is something that we, we tend to see as not a red flag, but maybe like a like almost red flag when looking at corporate structures and corporate governance, you know, it's like, when does it stop? It, it, does he ever feel like he's going to need 45% voting control? I don't know. 33% seemed like a lot to me. If I had my druthers in an ideal world, I'd want my vote to matter. <laughs> and I feel like my vote doesn't matter at Shopify. But um, overall, Toby has proven himself to be a visionary. He's proven himself to be someone that can build great teams, great product. If we take him at his word that he's trying to build a 100-year business, then then maybe control is the is the right move here. It's just it's just not super comfortable with me, but you know I, I do intend to be a long-term share owner. Yeah, I think um, wanting a vote and being a, a tech investor or growth investor can sometimes be a little bit mutually exclusive. <laughs> That's a good huh? point. That's a good point, Dylan. Yes, yes. <laughs> just a a reality of the space. Um, I mean, what's what's interesting about it is even at forty percent, it's it's not a controlling voting stake. You know, there there still needs to be agreement and some consensus sure. for anything dramatic to be passed. But I I see your points there, John. Yeah, That's good ones. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, you, you make a point though. When you're investing in in founder-led tech, you're you're giving up some voting power. If you've been investing for a few weeks or even 10 years, you haven't been through an extended bear market before. Fear not. Producer Ricky Mulvey and TMF analyst Ron Gross are here with a bear market bootcamp. Welcome to Bear Market Bootcamp. If you've been investing since 2020 or even 2012, you have not seen a long bear market. So, uh, we don't know when the bottom will come, but if you're a stock investor, you might want to pack your bags for a longer ride than the last one. Joining me now is Ron Gross. Thanks for being here. Hey, Ricky. Always a pleasure. So, Ron, this is not your first bear market. So, for investors heading to their first bear market boot camp, uh, what are they packing? What should they bring? I think it's pretty much the same two things you should bring to investing in general, and that is time and temperament. They are the most important tools an investor can have. The proper temperament will make sure you don't make unnecessary mistakes, and the proper time horizon will make sure you can compound your wealth over long periods of time, and it will ensure that you can ride out whatever length the bear market happens to be, time and temperament. Whatever length 
It's the key phrase there. The last bear market lasted exactly 33 days. I think that's the shortest one on record. Uh, why are some investors expecting this one to last much, much longer? You know, I did a little research for you, Ricky, and uh, I came up with since 1966, the average bear market has lasted about 15 months. Much shorter than the average bull market, by the way. And they do often end pretty quickly with a rebound that is very difficult to predict. As you mentioned, 2020, 33 days, right? Uh, that's why long-term investors are usually better off just staying the course and not pulling money out of the market and trying to time it because you don't know when that quick rebound is going to occur. The COVID-induced bear market was caused, obviously, by a very specific reason, the pandemic. It was short-lived, but if vaccines didn't make it to the market as quickly as they did, it's likely we would have been in for a much longer and scarier ride there. Now, the one we're in now has a different cause, although it has some of its roots in COVID, namely supply chain disruptions and some fiscal stimulus that COVID did require. But, you know, we've lived with interest rates that are basically zero and quantitative easing for a very long time now. And the chickens are simply just coming home to roost. We've had some very good years. Now it's time for a bit of a correction. That's the way the market works in cycles. Hard to predict how long it will take the Fed to get inflation under control. We don't know how high interest rates will go. And we don't know if we're in, for, in a recession actually right now, as some are saying, or if we're going to be going into a recession as a result of ped, Fed policy, or if the Fed will be able to engineer a soft landing. I have no way to predict how long a bear market will last. At the heart of COVID, I certainly wouldn't have guessed 33 days. Um, so that's really the reason for staying the course. I've seen some comparisons to the 1970 bear or the bear market from the 70s with high oil, high oil prices, hot oil, hot oil prices, <laughs> yeah, and inflation. I've seen some comparisons to the uh, tech or the dot com bubble with um, tech uh, tech stock prices kind of collapsing. What are the what are the similarities you've see you're seeing in this bear market to previous ones? You know, even though all corrections and bear markets are different, they do have certain very fundamental basic things in common and chief among them are stocks go down and you get nervous that's really what it boils down to now the different reasons during 2008 2009 great financial crisis great recession whatever you want to call it the fear was pretty palpable we were actually concerned that the financial markets could be significantly or even permanently impaired and we could end up in a depression in 2000, it wasn't like that at all. Most everyone knew that there was a dot-com internet bubble forming, and then it was going to burst at some point. And then I've developed a rule of thumb, uh, Ricky. Maybe you can use this at home. If people you don't know that if people you meet that don't know that much about investing are coming up to you at a party or a backyard barbecue and telling you about how much money they are making and how easy it is then you can be relatively sure you're in some kind of a bubble. That's how it was with dot-com stocks in 2000, real estate speculating in 2008. And Ricky, how about this year? Can you think of anything perhaps that people would come up to at a party and, and tell you that they're making gobs and gobs of money at least a few months ago? 
Oh, uh, cryptocurrencies. That could be, Cricky. Yes, good answer. Crypto and maybe even NFTs would be a little bit even more uh, suspect. You know, it's not to say that there weren't good internet stocks back then or good real estate investments back then and perhaps good cryptocurrencies right now. It's the excess that we have to watch out for. It's tulips in Holland in the 1600s that we need to be wary of. All corrections in bear markets are somewhat different, but they all really have the, the, that in common that stocks go down and we get really fearful and we sometimes don't know how to react. Let's talk about the Fed for a sec. Uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell recently said in a congressional testimony, quote, we are not trying to provoke and do not think we will need to provoke a recession, but we do think it's absolutely essential that we restore price stability really for the benefit of the labor market as much as anything else, end quote. Um, what what he's talking about here is is the buzzwords the soft landing. Um, is there any historical precedent of the Fed achieving this, or is a recession sort of bear market inevitable whenever the Fed hikes interest rates? I love the word provoke in that sentence, like it's like a bear or a wild animal. Maybe that's <laughs> maybe actually appropriate. A um, couple different times where perhaps we did see a soft landing. Um, Alan Greenspan, Fed Reserve Chair has been credited with engineering a soft landing in 1994-95. Uh, Fed Reserve Chair Jerome Powell has also suggested the Fed achieved soft landings in 1965, back in the day, and 1984. But it, it is a difficult thing to do. In contrast, a recession followed the last five instances when inflation peaked above 5%. 1970, 1974, 1980, 1990, 2008 and possibly 2022. We will see when the next GDP uh, results come out. Um, so a soft landing would be wonderful, but it is not the easiest thing to achieve. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. You're a stock investor. You're looking down your brokerage account. What are some signals that the companies you own are ready for a longer bear market? Is cash on the balance sheet more important right now? Should we be focusing on on companies with high ROIC, what are you looking at? You know, for sure, companies that generate, actually generate cash flow, are profitable and generate cash flow, and have strong balance sheets, will be able to weather a bear market or an economic downturn. Now, that doesn't mean every company you own has to have those characteristics. If you're well diversified, you'll likely have a mix of companies some that do better during boom times, and some that hold up better during bust times. During difficult times, the stronger the company, the likely the better it will perform, or the, the, the better you'll be able to sleep at night knowing that you're an owner of it. But sometimes these great companies also get their prices bid up, 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 and then during bad times, they just come back down. Um, I think Isaac Newton taught us that that what goes up eventually must come down, at least for certain periods of time. Um, but listen, you, you could never go wrong in any market or any economy by buying really strong, profitable companies with great balance sheets. Any really strong, profitable uh, companies with great balance sheets coming to mind for you? Oh, gosh. I mean, you know, there's so many. I've always been a fan of Costco and Nike, although Nike's uh, getting smacked around a bit this week um, as a result of higher uh, shipping costs. Uh, Home Depot is a great company. Disney, 
Apple and Microsoft probably go without saying. Um, despite the uh, pounding that Target has taken this year, I'm a big fan of that business model. Um, so lots of wonderful companies out there that not only make a ton of money, but have great balance sheets as well. All right. Any final tips for a newer investor? Maybe this is your first bear market. Maybe this is your second traversing these lands. I think I'll go back to where we started. It always comes back to me to time and temperament. 100% of the time, the stock market has rebounded and moved higher after a correction or a bear market. 100% of the time. I see no reason to think this time would be any different. If it is, by the way, we've got bigger problems in the stock market. So stay the course, keep a long-term perspective, and I think we'll all be just Ron Gross, thank you for your time and your temperament. Thank you, Ricky. My pleasure. As always, people on the program may have interests in stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you.